Grab your Bibles. Here we go. We are in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week we were talking on the um, Jesus touching the leper. Remember that? And Jesus went and he touched the leper. And the idea there is he didn't just go. He actually laid his hand on him and he said, I will be clean. And so Jesus healed the leper. And then we talked about the paralyzed man and the man that the four friends lowered down through the roof to get in front of Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. It's not what you'd expect him to say. It's not, uh, you know, you, that's just not in the repertoire. And, uh, and then he said, for the Pharisees' sake, okay, if that's not clear enough for you, here's what I say. Arise, pick up your pallet and go home. And, and he said that so that you would know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth. And so this title, Son of Man, is a, a really important title. We'll look at it more as we continue to go along in the gospel. But we're going to look at three key moments in Jesus' ministry. And then at the end, we'll celebrate communion together. So we're starting in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And it reads like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. So like so many stories in Scripture, it just looks like, you know, Jesus walks on, bing, follow me, bing, okay, boom, right? And it's just this immediate kind of thing. But there's a lot more to it uh, when you check in and when you dig a little further. It seems that Jesus was now walking along the Sea of Galilee, kind of like an itinerant minister would. And as he was walking along, he came by what we would call a toll booth or a tax booth. And in there was Levi. And it says, as he passed by that tax booth or that toll booth, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and sitting in that office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he, Levi, arose and he followed him. It's universally held here that Levi is Matthew. All right? That's the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. This is where he shows up, uh, beginning in the stories and in the dialogue. And Levi's circumstances are interesting because they're different than, as we've already seen with Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen, right? And so it was a little bit different. The role of a, a tax collector was widely hated and reviled. And the reason it was was simply this. Um, you kind of sold out, right? You were a Jewish person. You sold out to the Romans. And then you were extorting taxes from your fellow Jewish people so that the Romans could do what they wanted to do. And, and so you were, you were just a despised person. Spat on would be kind of the way we would look at it. And yet, it was also a very lucrative position. So it's one of these weird roles where nobody wanted it, yet everybody wanted it, or everybody envied it, because they, they, got, they made a lot of money doing this. And so it kind of came down to your uh, ability, or your threshold, so to speak, of how much did you care what people thought about you. If you cared a lot about what you thought about you, you'd never take that role. If you really didn't care, you took the role because you liked the money. Let them spit. I got dough. Okay? That's kind of how it came down. And so Levi is in this lucrative position. He's in Capernaum, which is again on that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, right? We saw that map before. And um, it's, that was the nexus of several trade routes that came through uh, that country. And so Levi, that, that tax booth, that toll booth there, 
was there to uh, get taxes as people came through on the main highway. And um, when Jesus called Levi, his circumstances were very different than we mentioned the other disciples. Peter and, and the boys could always go back to fishing. Remember, James and John left their father in the nets and they went, well, the, the father was still fishing with the servants. So later on we find out after Jesus was crucified, Peter said, well, I'm going to go back fishing. They said, oh, we'll go with you. Right? They had something to go back to. That is not true for Levi. When he walked away from that booth, when Jesus said, you come follow me, and he walked away from that booth, he was saying goodbye to that forever. There was no going back. He couldn't come back three years later and say, hey, I've rethought the whole thing. I'd like my job back. Right? What do you think the Romans say? Oh, we've missed you so much. Welcome back, Levi. We're so glad. No, that's not how it went or how it would go. All right? Um, Levi was collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, right? We saw him a couple uh, messages ago, and he was called the fox. So you could see how this, this all went. Um, so this is important. Why? Because it tells us about the, uh, the motives of Levi. We get a picture into how this guy operated and why he operated the way he did. Originally, Levi, or Matthew as we know him, uh, was in it for power, money, status, pretty selfish. And it motivated him to take a job that would cost him his relationships and his friends, uh, his relationships with his friends and fellow countrymen. So he was like, okay, who cares? And he took it. And then he wound up friends with a whole bunch of other people. We'll see here in just a second. Now this has all been reversed. Right? He had to give that all up. And again, notice that this didn't happen in a vacuum. Levi is in Capernaum. He's right there. When Jesus started doing all the stories we walked through just before this, he would have heard it all because why? He was at Grand Central Station. He was at the tax. Everything came through there. So he'd have heard all the reports, all the stories. He probably saw the crowds. He probably saw several of the incidences. And by all <coughs> takes, it had an incredibly profound effect on him. To the point where he was willing to walk away from all his stuff and follow Jesus. And this is our first landing point this morning, right? It's always a good chance for us to check as well. When we think about our relationship with Jesus and Jesus having said to us, come follow me, just like he did, Levi. Um, and you ask, well, what about us? What do we cling to? Do we cling to our stuff? Or do we cling to Jesus? Do we cling to status or Jesus? Do we cling to money or Jesus? Or maybe even on a baser level, do we cling to our selfishness and Jesus? Let's pray this morning as we consider obeying the command to follow him that we would do the same thing Levi did. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we've used this little bit of setup here with the story of Levi and Matthew. You came and said, come follow me, and he left and came and followed you. And Lord, in his case, it's kind of an excommunication because he can't go back. And Lord, that's been true for some of us as well. And as we are at the stage of life where only you know where we are, 
We have no idea what tomorrow or the next week or the next years will bring. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to stay faithful in following you. We're here this morning gathered to think that through, to wrestle with it, to uh, back and forth with you and, and to resolve ourselves to be true and to follow you with a whole heart. We ask this morning you'd help us with these illustrations that you used. Brilliant illustrations, by the way, Lord, uh, that would help us cement this stuff in our hearts in a really good way. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, so we go from Levi following. Now the story jumps to a banquet being held in Levi's house. The Expositor's Bible commentary says this is probably a goodbye party. Uh, And so Matthew knows he's leaving. He's walking out of that industry and walking into the role of being a disciple. And so he's kind of having a goodbye party and he invites all his friends. And so we see what happens in verses 15 and 16. It says, Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, he said to his disciples, or they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? I'm adding the emphasis there. All right? You can tell this has blown a gasket. This is not okay. This is not kosher. This is not funny. They're not taking it lightly. This is like, all right, you've just crossed the line. And we don't like the line. And so they go after the disciples and where does he get off doing this? Well, think through the situation. If Matthew's having a goodbye party, who's he going to invite? He's going to invite his friends. Who's our, who are his friends? Fellow tax collectors, right? None of the Jewish people wanted it. Certainly the scribes and Pharisees didn't want to hang out with Matthew. And so it was all the people from the neighborhood who he hung out with, tax collectors then, and oh my gosh, sinners. Real live, honest sinners. Can you believe it? And it says there weren't a few. It says, actually, if you look, it says there were many of them. So I don't know how many is, because it doesn't tell us how many is, but many's got to be more than a few. Right? And so just think of a big house. He probably had money. He probably had one of the bigger houses in town. He invited all his friends. They came. They packed the house out. And Jesus comes and he sits with them. All right, this is really unorthodox. And this is really unkosher. This is not good. Right? The fact that he would even go in the same house or even be identified with them would have been considered sinful on the Pharisees and the scribes part because they did not hang out with quote-unquote sinners. Uh, so who were Matthew and Levi's, um, who were Matthew's friends? Matthew and Levi, same person. Who, who were his friends? These would have been the people who kind of blew the law, right? They were probably considered by the authorities, the Jewish authorities, as reprobates, right? But they were the people that Matthew had relationship with and people that Matthew probably had fun with. Right? And so he just called out his posse and they all came, the house filled, and Jesus is sitting among them. They're the, I'd rather have fun group. Right? Just think of it that way. And, uh, and it says that this group of people was responding to him. That there were many, look at this verse up there, and what? They followed him. 
So it was more than just a casual get-together. Levi said, hey, I'm having a go-away party. I've invited Jesus to come to my house. Anybody interested? And it says a bunch of people showed up. Not who you'd exactly think, but a bunch of people showed up. It says they were following him. And the scribes and Pharisees, they just go nuts. Okay? What is he doing? Where does he get off pulling this stunt? Doesn't he know who he's sitting at the table with? Right? And here's the gist of that. What they're really saying is he certainly can't be God. And notice how instinctively they pull that trigger. I mean, it just comes up, bang. He can't be God. Well, if he was God, he would certainly not be doing this. They had the picture of Jesus had to bend to them and get their stamp of approval. And Jesus wasn't doing that. He was staying over here and expecting them to bend to him. And so you've got a power struggle. You've got a claim issue. You've got an authenticity issue. Uh, you've got an authentic issue. Who, what's really going on here? Jesus hears this and he, he, he does this. This is brilliant. Okay? Jesus, when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's our second landing point this morning. The commentary, the Expositor's Bible commentary says, this is the most profound statement in the Gospel of Mark, this physician comment. He says it just laid out this uh, incredible picture of what Jesus was doing. And Jesus uses the illustration of a physician or a doctor. We get that. We go to doctors. We understand how that is. You don't go to a doctor unless you're sick. And so Jesus is comparing how people are reacting to him to how they react to a doctor. Let's just take a quick look at this. So there's a doctor. You know there's a doctor, okay? Here's several responses to the doctor. Number one, fine, but I don't go in even if I am sick. I don't need no stupid doctor. I'm fine, right? Some of you are nodding your heads. All right, got it, okay? Second response. Well, I don't go. I'm healthy. What would I need a doctor for? Uh, doctor should come to me. I show them what health is. Okay. Third response is, I'm sick. I better go. Like now, can you take me? Right. Some of us are smart. We actually go. Okay. And then there's this response. Not only do I go, but I go for regular checkups, wellness checkups. Uh, it's wise. It keeps me, if something's tipping, they'll catch it early and, and I can keep going. And so I don't just assume I'm always going to be healthy. I assume checkups might be wise. You listen to this, Bob and I? Checkups might be wise. <laughs> Duh. And, and I should go and get a wellness checkup. All right, now let's take that to Jesus. Bob's my friend. And let's go to Jesus, all right? The great physician, former friend. And... Um, <laughs> Let's look at how they were responding to Jesus. Okay, What you find is there were some who were very opposed and very resistant to his diagnosis. They did not like what he was saying and they didn't like the way he was saying it. So they're not going to go see him. There's another group that just simply don't need his services. I, I don't even know why you're here. We've got this taken care of. We've got it mapped. Um, you're just messing stuff up. Okay? There's a third group 
said this, I need his healing. I, I need a doctor. I need a great physician. I need to um, get healed. And then the fourth group is, I need to keep going for spiritual checkups. I don't just go once. I go to the doctor, that was it. I never go to the doctor again the rest of my life. I should go to the doctor on a regular basis, right? I need to go. It, it, I need to keep on top of this, this stuff. And so when it comes to Jesus, you get four categories of people. You get the rebellion, the rebellious ones. Not going in. Can't make me, not talking to him, not going to church, not going to do it. <laughs> Done, right? Don't. Don't go past go. Do not collect $200. Gong. Thanks for playing. Not going. Right? That's the rebellious ones. Then you get the self-righteous ones. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. Well, what about hell? Well, good people don't go to hell. I'm fine. As a matter of fact, I could really help Jesus out if he asked me his opinion. If he asked my opinion, I could could help him. Because I could tell him how it's really going down here. I don't think he gets it. That's the self-righteous group. Then you have sinners. We blew it. We blew it. I need help. I can't clear it. It's killing me. It's weighing me down. I can't get my conscience right. I'm in trouble. I need help. Somebody please help me. And Jesus said, I'll be your physician. And they say, thank you. And then you've got a fourth category, the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are former sinners. Okay? The saints are only saints because of what the doctor did for them, not because of what they did for them. And so the saints are the former sinners, and the saints keep going to Jesus so that they stay saints and don't turn back into sinners. Right? We make a big error that we are righteous because we're righteous, and, and we forget that little piece, oh, we're only righteous because of what Jesus has actually done for us. Right? Go back to that saying now. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is actually a rebuke to them. right? But it's a rebuke with a hook. And it's a beautiful hook. What he's saying is this. If you will repent, if you'll admit your sin, you can be made righteous too. What is Jesus identifying here in the, in the scribes and the Pharisees? What's he, what's he pinpointing? What is he going, you know, and putting his finger right on top of? It's the deadly sin of pride. Okay? It's the sin of pride. They were so full of their own stuff, their own righteousness, so full of themselves, they couldn't see Jesus or who he really was. Or why they'd even need him. And sometimes that can be true of us as well. Yeah, I should have a quiet time. Yeah, I should pray. Yeah, I should. Why? I, I'm doing pretty good. You ever said that? I'm doing pretty good. And most of the time when we say that, we're not doing pretty good. All right? It's one of the dumbest things we ever say. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And I tell people all the time, no, you're not. Look at you. Oh, why are you being so mean to point that out? Because you're so blind to not see it. Right? That's the job of a pastor. I actually had somebody say, you shouldn't point that stuff out. I said, that's the God-given mandate of a pastor. What do you expect me to do? Well, yeah, but for other people. (laughs) Okay? I'm so right, so religious, I don't need your help, God. Sinners acknowledge the need of a physician. 
Again, the universal principle is what? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the... Let's do that again. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the... Right? One more time. God is opposed to the... But gives grace to the... That's an absolute universal principle. If we're proud, we are going to get leveled. If we're humble, He will raise us up. You can go to James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 5, look that up, walk through it, memorize those passages. All right, let's move on. Moment number two. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came to Him and said, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples don't fast? Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. Fasting is a uniform, universal form of spiritual discipline. People have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they had it all backwards. You can tell by the way they're saying this who they thought was in control and what they thought was going on here. They, they had it backwards because, and this is a huge because, they didn't get who Jesus was. Again, they expected Jesus to move towards them. They didn't expect them to move towards Jesus. And so it's an issue of control. If he was going to get their stamp of approval, he had better line up with their rules. And again, Jesus is absolutely brilliant in this. I wish I had this capacity to think this quickly on my feet and be able to go, you know, and come out with a response like this. Usually I think of halfway good responses 20 minutes after the moment's passed. Okay? But he just flips the picture on them and he uses one that they're familiar with. He says this, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Jesus is bringing, using, uh, he's using a particular illustration of marriage, a wedding. And it's an illustration of joy. And he's saying, hey, at a wedding, weddings are a party. Weddings are a celebration. Weddings are lots of fun. You don't fast during a wedding. And you have to understand, in, in the Jewish culture, uh, sometimes weddings would last a whole week, right? If the people had means, it'd be a whole week celebration. And, uh, and they had a lot of fun with it. If you've ever watched Fiddler on the Roof or any of that, right? You get into a Jewish wedding, they go all out on those things. And, uh, and so what he's painting a picture for him is, is, hey, and I am the bridegroom. So he makes himself the main character in this analogy or this illustration and says, as long as I'm around, they're not going to mourn because mourning, um, fasting is a sign of mourning. They said, while they're with me, they're going to have a lot of joy. And he was also alluding to the marriage uh, wedding motifs that are found in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel 16 or the book of Hosea. They would have been keenly aware of that. And in those illustrations, he points out that the problem wasn't with the bridegroom, but it was with the bride. So when he's talking to them and he says, hey, how come your disciples don't fast? Well, how can they fast? I'm the bridegroom. And he would realize they were, he was pointing out the picture to them that they're the ones who are off, not him. Instead of making them humble, that made them matter. 
So then Jesus goes on with another illustration, another analogy. It's one of his most famous ones. Uh, we know this one really well. It says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the piece pulls away from the, gar- or from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wineskins burst, or the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Uh, whole church movements have been based off of these verses right here. And volumes have written about wine and new wineskins and what that means and all the analogies. Just to simplify it this morning, Jesus here in both these analogies is indicating he's bringing about something brand new. It's not going to fit in their old stereotypes. It's not going to fit. He's not going to obliterate it. Jesus said, I didn't come to obliterate the law. I came to fulfill it. But they aren't in the being able to see that. And so Jesus is saying to them, I'm bringing about something brand new. And it's not going to fit in the old containers. It's not going to work. The old form, Judaism, won't work with the new cloth or the wine of Jesus' saving ministry. The new cloth's going to pull away from the old fabric and the new wine is going to literally burst the old skins, which in fact it did. Jesus' ministry, it, it, it burst open the locked and rigid form of Judaism and it, it turned open a door for all people, including Gentiles and sinners, which was unheard of because they were the chosen. We're God's chosen. We're His favorite. We're the special. God needs to come, rescue us, get rid of Rome, and then when the dogs come to us, we'll decide if we will respond to them or not. And the dogs were the Gentile people. And Jesus blew that wide open and said, everybody can come. And this should highlight for us how radically different what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God and what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Because they were teaching they were the kingdom of God and the, the keepers of the kingdom of God. Jesus said something quite different. He said, I am the kingdom of God. And this brings us to... Moment number three. Moment number three, Jesus' disciples are walking along. They get a little hungry. They're going through a grain field. And it says, as they happened, as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they, as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They are getting massively irritated. Um, at this point, if I could ask uh, the guys to distribute communion, we'll get it distributed while we're going through. So if you could begin doing that, because this illustration is going to lead us uh, to communion. So two things that were really raising the ire of the Pharisees. Number one, the, the, the disciples were doing what would, could technically be classified as work. Now you and I would say, work? They're just kind of walking through, grabbing some grain, you know, and how's that work? But technically, according to uh, the law, that was called reaping. They were harvesting. They were reaping grain by doing that. And so that was considered work. It just tells you how far down into the minutiae they got with stuff. And the second one is they were doing it with unwashed or unclean hands. They had not washed their hands before they walked through the field and grabbed a couple heads of grain. Now, washing hands is a good thing. Right? 
uh, if you go to a restaurant, you go to the bathroom, what's the little sticker say? All employees must wash their hands before they go back into the restaurant. Have you ever wondered why it's just the employees? Right? Why doesn't the sign say, everyone who's in the bathroom, wash your hands before you go back into the restaurant? Right? Well, the reason it doesn't that because they can't make you. The only people they can make is the employees. Okay? Do you think all the employees do that every time they go to the bathroom? Just goes to show we're lawbreakers. Okay? So when it comes to the law, when we're talking about the law here in the Sabbath, the Sabbath, so the Sabbath got elevated to this incredible status. So if you go back in, in the history of Israel, they end up being exiled to Babylon and the temple was demolished. Well, Jerusalem was demolished, leveled. There wasn't one stone on top of another. And so when they were in Babylon, they, the only thing that they had left was what we would call synagogue. And so the synagogue and the keeping of the Sabbath was the one thing they could still do. They, that couldn't be taken away from them. So the Sabbath became the thing that all the attention was given to in how to keep the Sabbath properly. Right? If you, if you look at um, the Ten Commandments, the only Two, above the law of the Sabbath was the first one, which is they had to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and, and to have nothing uh, ahead of him. And the second one was that they were to make no graven images or idols before him. They weren't supposed to have false pictures of what God was like because God wasn't like any image they could create. But the next one is keep the Sabbath holy. And so they overamped on the Sabbath and just made that to the nth degree. And thus, as the disciples walked through getting some grain and just rolling and popping in their mouth, they got on the police squad and they got in trouble and the cop lights flashed and they got pulled over for violating the Sabbath. Sabbath was sacrosanct. Sacrosanct, I've got to say that right. Pharisees had 39 laws that covered that day. All right, and you've already broken 40 of them. Okay? Uh, according to that, we've, we've broken them all today, if, if you look at that. So the, the, it was incredibly complex. So here's the problem, though. What was the problem? The problem was that they had the rules, but they lost the heart behind the rules a long time ago. The rules were put in place so that you could better worship God and better respond to Him. They weren't so that it became this legalistic uh, tight jacket um, that you couldn't move in. And they had it all backwards. And then they assumed they were the ones who were the authorities to control that. And so they had lost the heart behind the rules a long time ago. And so again, Jesus gives a brilliant analogy in the face of their contention. And Again, Jesus is amazing because every time they're bringing up scripture, they're bringing up accounts. Every time they do it, Jesus, they bring, throw some, boom, boom. Jesus throws it right back at them. Oh yeah, how about, boom, boom. Throws it right back at them. How about this one? Boom, boom, right? Just bang. And he comes back the same way. And he said to them, because they were chirping at him, and he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he's in need of, who's David? Their greatest king in the history of Israel, Right? And he says, well, have you never heard what David did? 
When he was in need and hungry, he and, and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And then he also, who, sinner of sinners, gave some to those who were with him. Okay. In this, Jesus is using David. Uh, in, early in his life, uh, when he wasn't king yet, when he was fleeing from Saul, and the, the story is that he was fleeing and he came to Nob, where Abathar was high priest, and he said, hey, you got anything? He said, well, I only have the bread. And he said, hey, the men haven't sinned. We can eat the bread. And so they ate the bread. And Doeg, the Edomite, was there. And Doeg sees David, knows David is fleeing, and so he runs back, tells Saul that he saw uh, David there. And... By the way, just a footnote in this. One of the people that I want to meet and have a conversation with in heaven is Abathar, the priest. I don't know if you know who this dude is, but he helps David. He's a loyal servant to the king. He gets hauled in front of Saul, uh, accused of treachery and betrayal. How could you have helped the, Lord, the Lord's enemies? And i.e. David is the Lord's enemy and I'm the Lord's anointed. How could you have helped my enemy? And Abathar says, what are you talking about? I've helped... David's your most trusted man. He's your son-in-law. I've helped him before. I've helped him many times. I've not done any such thing. I'm absolutely loyal to you. And Saul, in his treachery and wickedness, turns and has Doeg the Edomite kill Abathar. And I want to ask Abathar, what was it like to stand there knowing you told the truth and knowing you were going to get hacked to pieces anyways? Not only did he get hacked to pieces, but 85 other priests, his family, got hacked to pieces in the process of that. What was that like, Abathar, to stand there? I'd like to know. Find that amazing. But back to our picture here. Jesus says something that's really profound off of this illustration. He says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying something incredibly profound. He is saying somebody greater than King David is standing in front of you right now. I mean, now think of that from a Jewish perspective. That would be crazy. I mean, who's greater than David? Well, maybe Abraham, right? Uh, I don't know. Someone greater than David is here. More than that. This is really mind-blowing. The one who's standing in front of you, Jesus, he's greater than the Sabbath. Stop and think what you know about the Sabbath just being a Gentile. What if someone said, I am greater than the Sabbath? How would you respond to that? He, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, for those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, I want to submit this again, both publicly and or privately, either one. If, if you claim to be greater than the Sabbath, then you are claiming to be God. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for people who set aside time to worship God. And if Jesus is saying the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, He is claiming to be the one who is the original one who put the Sabbath in place. 
it would look a little bit like this. We would call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the Jewish context, he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. There's only two things you can do with that. You either acknowledge that and you bend the knee and you surrender and you agree that he's Lord of the Sabbath or you rebel and you resist against him. When it comes to Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath comes to communion. The Sabbath was made for rest. The idea that they weren't supposed to do any work is God knew our proclivity to work no matter what. And he wanted a day where people actually shut down. We used to have in this country what were known as blue laws. I'm actually old enough to have grown up under those. And uh, they were laws that businesses could not operate on Sunday. Right? And actually, uh, when I grew up as a kid, weekends were weekends. You actually had a Saturday. You actually had a Sunday. And you rested on those days for the most part. Okay? Now, today, we run... Full tilt, 24-7, 365. Rest? We don't need no rest. And God says, oh yeah, you do. You need to rest in me. I am your rest. I'm the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of rest. And as we come to communion this morning, I thought that was just a really profound picture. I've seen that before. I've read that before. I've preached that before. But it just caught me in a special way this time through. Does God's people need rest? Do you need rest? Yes, we do. What's ironic today is people don't go to church because they say what? Sunday is my day of rest. We flip the pictures just like the Pharisees have. I'm the source of my rest, not God. If you've come this morning, you've honored Him, and He will grant you rest because you've come to find your rest in Him, which is what communion's about. And the symbols, Jesus said, uh, this represents my body. Jesus said what? I'm the bread of life. Bread is what nourishes you. He's saying, I'm the author of life. I'm the food of life. I'm the Lord of Sabbath. He used all kinds of illustrations. He said, my body will be broken for you. He says, so that whenever you gather together, I've given you this picture, so what? That you would remember me. Not me, Steve. Me, Jesus. Right? That you would remember Jesus. Jesus says, eat this in memory of me. And then he took the cup, which is a symbol of his shed blood. He said, this is for the remission of your sins. The idea is our sins are taken away. If we're not rebellious, if we're not self-righteous, but we come to him and say, I need a doctor. I need my sins forgiven. I need a diagnosis that will help. Then Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, what? I will give you rest. Jesus says, drink this in memory of me. The team's going to come up. We're going to worship. It's a great song to sing to the Lord after this.
But let's pray this morning before we do that. Let's stand. We've been sitting for a while. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Would you join me? Father, as we stand here, I know for certain that there are some people who have tried to rest in you this week that weren't that successful. They're buzzing. They're agitated. Our culture's really good at ramping up anxiety. Our culture's really good at making us feel disconnected. Lord, and, and that's easy to come into church with that and, and to be buzzing and to not be at rest. Some of us, Lord, had a really great week as David prayed. We've done well. We've been in the Word. We've prayed. We've rested through the week with You. We've walked with You. And we came this morning to be filled up and to find our rest in You. Lord, that picture, You are the Lord of the Sabbath. We have come to honor You today. You dwell in the praises of Your people. May there be rich rest as we celebrate You. We give that to You in Your name. Amen.